Welcome to the Calvary Church Podcast. We're glad that you are here and that you can be a part of a recent service at TCC. So let's join the service, which is already underway, and listen to the message. But we're talking about Bible characters. I'm just going to jump right in. And when Pastor Tom asked me to speak on a Bible character, there was instantly someone who came to mind for me. And I remember um, the first time I was reading through the Bible, I was reading in the book of Kings, and, um, and there, were, there, were, there were two basically phrases that you would, you'll see when you're reading through the Kings. When there's a new king of Judah, it will either say something like this, Uh, And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all his father Amaziah, this is just a random one I picked, had done, except that the high places were not removed and the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Or you would see something like this. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel to sin. Those are the two things you see. And every time I read about a good king... It happens five times before you get to the sixth king, the sixth good king. And it says this in 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 1 through 7. It says, Now it came to pass in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what it was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all his father David had done. And then it says this, and this is the part, every time I read it, I would be like, when is somebody going to take down these high places? And then it finally happened, and I was like, yes, it happened. And it says, and he removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image, and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah nor who were before him, for he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. The Lord was with him. He prospered wherever he went. And I read that, and I was like, it was like a victory, you know? I thought it was so cool. And and ever since then, I've had kind of a fascination with Hezekiah. Uh, He's a very interesting character. I know Probably the first few times I just thought he was a hero, and then I realized, no, he, he made some pretty grave mistakes. So he's a complicated um, character. He's nuanced, um, which is good because um, we all are. Um, and so uh, I'm going to try to cover and talk a little bit about Hezekiah, but I hope Hopefully, if, if you haven't studied Hezekiah before, I would suggest that you dive into him because what I have time to say here is not even close to going to come close to covering what you could say about him because there's just so much. He's actually, um, there's three different um, passages or, or, or uh, parts of scripture that talk about his story. Um, the first is 2 Kings chapter 16 
verse 20 through chapter 20, verse 21. Second Chronicles, chapter 28, verses 27 through chapter 32, verse 33. And then in Isaiah, uh, chapter 36 and verse 1 through chapter 39 and verse 8. And I'm going to jump around between those three books. Um, uh, so that's kind of where we'll, we'll be for most of the night. Um, but the kings of Judah showed what a great influence that the leadership in a person's life has. Whether it's a nation or a company or a church, the way of the leadership is typically the way of the people. Hezekiah's father Ahaz had led the nation of Judah away from God by doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord. We talked about that, the evil in the sight of the Lord and the good in the sight of the Lord. And his dad was one of the evil ones. And, uh, but when Hezekiah finally becomes king, he turns the tide in a way that no other king of Judah, even the other good kings, had ever done. And the first thing Hezekiah, there's four really parts of Hezekiah's story that we're going to talk about. Um, and the first part of this are the sweeping religious reforms that he implemented when he first became king. So, the first thing that happens in Hezekiah's reign is he begins a process of sanctification for the people of Israel as well as the temple of the God of Israel. It appears that under previous administrations, the temple had really fallen into disrepair. The priesthood and the Levites had not been fulfilling their duties as keepers of God's temple. So Hezekiah called on the Levites to first sanctify themselves in order to prepare themselves for the work that they had to do. They had to repent of the lives they had lived that had led to the disrepair in the first place, turning back to God and recommitting themselves to the covenant that the nation had made with the one true God of Israel. The people of God had not put a priority on their relationship with God. The state of the temple was simply a reflection of the state of their lives and hearts, and Hezekiah knew that. So he rallied them to turn back to God, to repent, and to have and build a relationship with this God. And once the Levites and the priests repented and sanctified themselves, uh, then they could turn to sanctifying the temple, the house of God. So Second Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 17 says this, Now they began to sanctify on the first day of the first month, and on the eighth day of the month they came to the vestibule of God. So they sanctified the house of the Lord in eight days. And on the 16th day of the first month, they finished. So they had sanctified themselves. Clearly that, that, that had happened at the end of the previous year. And now they began right at the beginning of this new year to sanctify the temple. It was a new year, a fresh start. We all know what that's like, right? We're, we're really, we're coming up. We've got only a few months until a new year comes um, and we'll all, you know, be, it, it's coming quick. Um, we'll all, you know, be trying to do new things. Maybe we'll be trying to exercise more or have a new diet or, 
pray more or, you know, we'll all have things that we want to do. Maybe we will want to be more strict with our finances. Who knows what it'll be? But this new year, we know what it's like to start a new year and try to start new things and kind of get things into, uh, get, get a fresh start in our lives. And that's what happened for the entire nation of Israel. Now, there, the sanctification of the people, I think we can understand that, repentance um, and turning towards a relationship with God. But the sanctification, sanctification of the temple was two-part. One was the common uh, cleansing of the temple. You see, the temple had accumulated dirt and dust and cobwebs and rust. And the reason for this was because there were parts of the temple that were not being used. They had been shut up. They had been shut out for years. And so they had to clean out all of this common dirt, which is, had no place in the temple of God because there's nothing common about God. He's holy. And so they had to remove these common uh, dirts and common issues out of the temple. The second part, however, of the sanctification was of the idols and idolatrous altars that were, had crept into other parts of the temple. You see, the parts of the temple that were not just neglected completely had been used for the altars of these Baals and these idols and these Canaanite gods. And so they had to get rid of both the common issues, but also the idolatrous issues out of the temple in order for um, worship to began again in the temple. They needed sanctification from both disuse and from misuse. From disuse and from misuse. And I think that we can understand that in our personal relationships with God. Sometimes we just don't spend time with God. And when we don't spend time with God, there's dirt and cobwebs and things that we've got to get out of our life before we can begin to pursue a relationship with him again. If we are his temple, we have to get rid of that common dirt and get it out of our life if we want him to dwell in us, which he should because we are the temple of God now. But also misuse. When we focus on things that are not of God, we have to, there are there are just as many, if not more, idols today than there were during the time of Jerusalem. And we could go all through all the things, but I think you all know, you know what you give your time to above the things of God. And so I think that this cleansing of the temple is a beautiful illustration of what we need to do at times in our own life. When we don't when we don't spend time with God, we've got to clean those cobwebs. When we spend time doing things other and putting things above God, we've got to clean out those idols and those altars out of our life as well so that we can be sanctified and can be um, just a, a, a place where God will reside. And so once the people in the temple were sanctified, worship was able to be restored to the temple, which is an amazing thing. Before these corrections, God-ordained worship was not possible. God had ordained his temple as the center of worship and of life for the people of Israel. 
And Hezekiah and Judah did not see it as enough that they had repented and cleaned up their lives and the temple, but they knew they had to follow what God had said to do in worship. They began with a sin offering of seven bulls and seven rams and seven lambs and seven male goats for the sins of the nations and of the people. And Matthew Henry said this about, about these, um, these offerings. He said, atonement must be made for the sins of the last reign. They thought it not enough to lament and forsake those sins, but they brought a sin offering. Even our repentance and reformation will not obtain pardon, but in, but in and through Christ, who had, was made sin, that is a sin offering for us. No peace but through his blood. Another great illustration for us in our lives today. It's not enough for you to just say sorry and to clean up the parts of your life that need to be cleaned up. That doesn't save you. And it didn't save them. And Hezekiah recognized that they couldn't just clean things up, but they needed a sacrifice, just like we need a sacrifice today. They needed the blood to be spilled. And thankfully, the blood's already been spilled for us. But being a good person, doing the right things, saying sorry for the things that you've done wrong will not save you. The only thing that saves us is Jesus and the blood that he shed. His sacrifice as our sin offering that covers our sins. Cleaning things up ourselves does not cover our sin. Only Jesus' blood does. And for those of of you who are here who might not know, I don't know, we might have a guest here who doesn't know, the only way for the blood to cover you is for you to repent and to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And if you do those things, God will fill you with his spirit, with the evidence of speaking in other tongues, and you, it will allow you to overcome sin and death. And that is the only way to get to heaven. All right, so... These are cool things. These are great things that, uh, that Hezekiah has done. These reforms are beginning. But really, these are just the beginning of his reforms, okay? He cleans up the people. He cleans up the temple. He gives the sacrifice, and the nation gives a sacrifice. That was just the beginning. Um, and then they begin to celebrate the Passover, The celebration of the Passover had been neglected for many years and probably maybe even decades and centuries by the time Hezekiah became king. There were not a lot of kings. There were a few who really followed the Passover. And the purpose of the Passover, for those of you who don't know, or maybe for a reminder, was to remind the Israelites of their covenant and relationship with God, to remind them of his power and ability to to deliver them from any situation as he had delivered them from the hands of their oppressors in Egypt. The neglect of this holy day, holiday no doubt contributed to the neglect of the people's relationship with God and of the temple and their daily walk with God. And the repentance and sanctification of the people and their lives continued the same. If, if it had continued the same as before, I would say that they probably would have begun to neglect those things again. And I believe Hezekiah knew the importance of this reminder. God had ordained it. He said, teach your children what this means. 
and it was a reminder to them who God was for them. And he, um, he knew that if they did not have that reminder, they would continue the path that they had been forging before he had uh, created these reforms. And they were, uh, typically, the Passover was supposed to be, um, it was supposed to be celebrated in the first month, actually. It was the first thing at the beginning of the year. We were talking about that new year. It was a fresh reminder of who God was and what he had done for them. But because of the disrepair and the issues that they had and the things they had to fix in the temple, they were not able to um, do the Passover in that first month. They were busy cleaning the temple at that time. And maybe you could think, well, we'll just do it the next year. You know, no big deal. But instead of waiting until the appointed time for the next year, Hezekiah decided, we need to celebrate this now. And they celebrated it in the second month, which is not what God said. But he said, this is so important, we can't delay it anymore. It was important not to delay the Passover because they needed to follow the commands of the Lord immediately. And I think... Pastor Pasley always used to say it, that delayed obedience is disobedience. And that's what this reminds me of. If, if God says that we need to start doing it today, right now. So that's what they were doing. They said, hey, we couldn't do this now, but we're not waiting another year until we can do it at the appropriate time. We're going to do it now because God said this is what we must do. So When they began to celebrate the Passover, Hezekiah invited not only the people of Judah to come and worship the Lord at the Passover, but all of the children of Israel. He had sent uh, messages out to all of the tribes, and he said, come and worship God. And the purpose of this invitation was not for political gain. He wasn't trying to manipulate a situation. He wasn't trying to assert authority, which is a thing that Israel and Judah had had issues with. Israel said, oh, you don't need to, sh- to worship in Jerusalem in the past. You don't have to worship at the temple. And they had set up their own temples, which had led to idolatrous worship. But Hezekiah, this was not for him a, pol- uh, a means of political gain, but rather it was an opportunity for Israel to return to the Lord and to their covenant with him. He said, we're all the people of God. We need to come together and worship God and truth in the way that he has called us to uh, worship him. And most of the tribes of Israel actually mocked Hezekiah and God. But there were a few, a small few who humbled themselves and they came to Jerusalem and they worshiped God at the Passover as he had ascribed them to worship him. They took away all the altars apart from the altar of the Lord at the temple out of Jerusalem, and all the idolatrous altars were gone. And I think this is, especially with the Passover, the Passover, they ate unleavened bread. They took the leaven out of the house. They couldn't even have it in their home. And the purpose of that was to remind them that just a little bit of sin will ruin the rest of your life. And this was a type of spiritual leaven that they had removed from their city. They took all of the altars and took them out of Jerusalem. And they said, we're not even going to have a little bit of leaven in our, in our city. And it was a spiritual reform. And many of the people from the tribes of Israel had not, who came had not cleansed themselves as the people of Judah had. So they, 
the people of Judah, they had repented. They had um, given these sin offerings for the entire nation. And the other Israelites had come after that had happened. And so they were unclean, which meant that they did not have a right to eat the Passover dinner, which meant they were sinning by eating the Passover dinner. And because of this situation, we see the first prayer that Hezekiah, that the Bible shows us that Hezekiah prays in 2 Chronicles chapter 30, verses 17 through 20. And it says, for there were many in the assembly who had not sanctified themselves. Therefore, the Levites had charge of the solder of the Passover lambs for everyone who was not clean to sanctify them to the Lord. For a multitude of the people, many from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun had not cleansed themselves, that they ate the Passover contrary to that what, to what was written. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord provide atonement for everyone who prepares his heart to seek God, the Lord God of his fathers, though he is not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. And the Lord listened to Hezekiah and healed the people. The first prayer that we see, and there are several prayers, we're talk, we'll talk about them um, coming up, that are recorded that Hezekiah prayed. But the first prayer is a prayer of intercession for others. The people had pure and sincere intentions, but they had done, uh, done it the wrong way. And so they still needed prayer. And because of the condition of their hearts, they were, they were truly seeking after God. And because of the intercessory prayer of, of Hezekiah, these people were, were saved. They were protected. They were not, really, they should have been killed because they had eaten the Passover lamb or the Passover uh, dinner unclean. But Hezekiah, in this short little prayer, keeps them from this uh, doom that they deserved. And so, the next thing that happens is the thing that I was really excited about at the beginning. Hezekiah has the high places torn down. So in Deuteronomy chapter 12, um, verses 1 through 8, and we'd, I'm not going to read the verses I was going to, but we're, the time is going quickly. Basically, those verses, God tells the people, hey, you need to get rid of all the high places. You, I will appoint a place that you can worship me, and that is the only place you should worship me. So, And it says to utterly destroy all of the wooden images, all of the altars, all of the idols. And basically, the uh, Israelites had not done that. Before they entered the promised land, he had commanded the children of Israel to tear these places down because he knew they would be a stumbling block to his people. It would lead them to the idolatrous practices that the Canaanites had practiced. The practices, in fact, that had caused the judgment of God to fall on them in the first place. Solomon even worshipped at and built high places himself, leading to idolatry. And Hezekiah recognized the evil and the stumbling block that the high places had been to Israel and would continue to be in Israel. So he had them all taken down and destroyed. They weren't just taken down and put away. He had them destroyed as well. 
Only the worship of one God, of the one true God, would be allowed. There wouldn't even be an opportunity or a place to go and worship these other gods. Even uh, Nehushtan, the bronze serpent that God had ordained Moses to make to heal the children of Israel in the wilderness, had to be destroyed. Because they had began to worship the object rather than the healer who uh, the object represented. The people had been sanctified. The temple had been sanctified. The Passover had been kept. And that is when the hard work actually began of tearing down these high places. And often I think we think once the sacrifice and repentance has been made in our lives then everything will be all right. But once we experience that new birth, according to Acts 2.38, and are cleansed of our sins, that's when the real work begins, honestly. That's not the, the arrival point. That's the starting point. And this story shows us that beautifully. They had done a lot of work just to get to that point. And I'm sure that taking down and destroying those idols were, was much harder work than anything that they had done up to that point. Because that is how life works. When we choose to live for God and we become sanctified, that's when the real work begins. Second Chronicles chapter 31, verses 20 and 21 says, Thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good and right and true before the Lord his God, and, and every work that he began in the service of the house of God, and the law and in the commandment to seek his God, he did it with all his heart. So he prospered. Because of Jude, or Hezekiah and his heart and his desire to serve God, Judah became a prosperous nation like under Hezekiah, unlike anything that it had been since the two kingdoms had split. Many historians say that they were a powerhouse in this area during the Iron Age, actually, and because of Hezekiah and his, his sacrifice. And the reason for all this was because Hezekiah's commitment to God, to serving him truly and faithfully, he did what no other king of Judah had ever done before. He had torn down the high places. He had removed those stumbling blocks. And because of that, God blessed him like he had not done for any other king of Judah. And then, in the next chapter, chapter 32, after all of these great things happen, the Bible describes a siege of Jerusalem by Sennacherib. I don't know how to say that. I listened to it several times on the Bible app, and I still, I knew I wasn't going to get it, but I'm sh- it's okay, you know who I, it was the king of Assyria, and the Assyrians came before these. And after these deeds of faithfulness, the king of Assyria came and entered into Judah, and he encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them over to himself. That's Second Chronicles chapter 32, verse 1. The enemy came to attack Hezekiah and the nation of Judah after their faithfulness. They had been so faithful. They had done the hard work. And then the enemy attacked. And when you are faithful, and when you sanctify yourself and do the hard work and put in the effort to turn towards God, that's when the attack is going to come. 
And the Syrians came to siege Jerusalem. Now, a siege, for those of you who don't know, is basically how war worked for most of human history, where you would have a city, and the army would just come out and wait until you ran out of food and water. And then when you were too weak, they would come and destroy the city and take over the city. And so that's what the Assyrians were trying to do to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was ready for the attack, though because they had prepared themselves in their faithfulness to the one true God. Maybe they, I'm not saying they were ready um, tangibly or physically, but they were ready spiritually for this attack. And the Bible tells us that Hezekiah took the advice of his leaders, and they had built basically a dam to prevent the water from getting out to the Assyrians. But in 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verses 7 and 8, Hezekiah speaks to the people of Jerusalem. And it says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid nor dismayed before the king of Assyria, nor before all the multitude that is with him. For there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people were strengthened by the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. See, Hezekiah was undaunted by the attack of the enemy because of his trust in the one true God. And we have more with God. It's a cliche, but we truly do have more with God than anything our enemy might have in his arsenal when he comes against us. It reminds me of the song, uh, No weapon, no weapon formed against me shall prosper. Because with God, we have more than any weapon that the enemy has. God is more powerful than any attack that might come against us. And after this had happened, though, the representatives of Assyria say this to the people in chapter 2, 32, excuse me. Thus says the king of Assyria, and what do you trust that you remained under siege in Jerusalem? Does not Hezekiah persuade you to give yourselves over to die by famine and by thirst, saying the Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria? Had not the same Hezekiah taken away his high places and his altars and commanded Judah and Jerusalem, saying, You shall worship before one altar and burn incense on it. Do you know what I and my fathers have done to all the people of other lands? Were the gods of the nations of those lands in any way able to deliver them, their lands out of my hand? Who was there among all of the gods of those nations that my fathers utterly destroyed that could deliver his people from my hand? That you, that your God should be able to deliver you from my hand. Now, therefore, do not let Hezekiah deceive you or persuade you like this. And do not believe him, for no God of any nation or kingdom was able to deliver his people from my hand or the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you from my hand? Furthermore, his servants spoke against the Lord God and against his servant Hezekiah. And there's a whole lot we could unpack here, and we're not going to unpack everything that we could, but I think there's a couple things I do want to point out. You see, the enemy brought lies to the people of God, trying to convince them that the things that pleased God, like the removal of the high places and the altars, displeased God, and that they were going to be punished for those things. But you know what happened? The people knew the truth because of the reforms that Hezekiah had put into place and because of the repentance of their hearts. They were prepared for this attack. 
and they knew the truth so that they would not believe the lies of their enemy. You need to know the truth of God's word, and in that knowledge, God will equip you for the attacks of the enemy. And then immediately Hezekiah goes into prayer. And we're going to jump over to 2 Kings now because I like the way this part of the story is said in, the, in uh, that passage better. 2 Kings chapter 19, verses 14 through 18, and it says, And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Then Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations of their lands have, and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they destroyed them. Now, therefore, O Lord our God, I pray, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God, you alone. And again, there's a lot we could unpack here, but we don't have time for all of it because there's just so much. But the Bible tells us that because Hezekiah prayed to God, And he literally, it says he took the note and he literally laid it before God. His problems, he literally laid them before the Lord. That God responded. And on on a following night, the angel of the Lord went out and he killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. And that this defeat caused Sennacherib and his remaining army to turn back home and leave their siege of Jerusalem. They had won because of Hezekiah's trust in the Lord. Now, Jerusalem was a mighty city in this time. They say that it was exponentially bigger than even when Solomon was king. It was a major kingdom. And not only was it a major kingdom itself, but it also had, as an ally, Egypt, who was a powerful military, had a powerful military. But Hezekiah knew that true victory and deliverance would only come from God. He did not trust in the wisdom of man, but rather in the wisdom and the power of God. No doubt if he would have called on his allies with all their horses and troops and weapons that the battle would have been lost. We cannot trust in our wisdom nor in the wisdom of man because our victory is not based on the wisdom of man. Hezekiah had seen Israel as well as other contemporary kingdoms. Israel had been overtaken by Assyria itself. But he trusted in the Lord, and that is what gave him victory. And the next part, the last part of this story talks about Hezekiah and his sickness. He became sick. There was a time in his life that he was so sick, in fact, that he was about to die. And when this happens is kind of debated. People actually think it might have happened before the siege, but that's not the point. Um, But it's just an interesting tidbit. But there... um, there is debate as well as to why he became sick. Maybe it was the judgment, a judgment from God. There's, um, in each passage that talks about Hezekiah in his life, it is the last thing told about him before his death. And many scholars say it is more likely that it happened before the Assyrian siege of Jerusalem. What is not up for debate here, though, is that Hezekiah was dying. 
Isaiah, the prophet of God, goes to tell Hezekiah to get his house in order because he was going to die. And Hezekiah's response, once again, is to turn to God in prayer. And in Isaiah chapter 38, verses 2 and 3, it tells us that then Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Remember now, O Lord, I pray, how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And in response to Hezekiah's prayer, Isaiah the prophet returns and he says, Hey, God has seen your prayer and seen your tears, and he has granted you 15 more years of life. And you know what I'm really struck by in all of these prayers? is how short and simple each of these petitions that Hezekiah made are. God doesn't need us to pray long, extravagant prayers with, you know, big words. All he needs and wants, really, is a sincere heart. Each time Hezekiah prays, his heart is sincere and his petition is granted. Prayer is, a pow- is powerful and prayer works, and Hezekiah's life shows us that. And after Hezekiah recovers, Babylon, which was a growing uh, nation at this time, sends an envoy to um, Jerusalem because they're like, wow, it's amazing that you were near to death and you recovered. And they sent letters and presents. And the Bible says that this pleased Hezekiah. And really what it's showing is that it allowed, Hezekiah allowed pride to creep up in his life. This pride led Hezekiah to show the Babylonians all the treasures and possessions that he had. And he told, when the prophet Isaiah asked, he told him, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. Isaiah says that because of Hezekiah's pride and showing them everything in his house, that someday everything that the kings of Judah had acquired would be carried away to Babylon and that nothing of value would be left. And you know what Hezekiah's response was? This is what makes him a little bit more of an iffy character. He says, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he said, At least there will be peace and truth in my days. What a short-sighted response. As long as things are okay while I'm here, I'm not really concerned what happens with the following generations. But you know what is uh, encouraging to me? That even with this failure, the Bible still tells us that he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all his father David had done. And it also tells us that he trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah nor who were before him. With the whole picture in mind, the writers, and God ordained for this to be written about Hezekiah. And it's encouraging to me because we can make mistakes and we can still have a heart after God. Our mistakes and our failures are not what defines us. It's not what defines Hezekiah. It's not what he's known for, even though he had them. Okay, so with that in mind, I have my discussion question And it is, what is a time in your life where you went to God in prayer instead of trusting your own abilities and talents and he answered you? Or, and that can be encouraging, or maybe if you're a little bit more bold, you could tell maybe about something that you need to go to God that maybe you've been trusting yourself with right now. So that's the discussion question, app time.
wonder how many of us were brutally honest. You know, Hezekiah eventually did die, and he had a son who became king after him named Manasseh. And the Bible tells us he was one of those evil kings. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. He did so bad that it wasn't even like as bad as the previous bad kings. It was like the previous people who had dwelled in um, Israel. And that's amazing to me because Hezekiah really did trust the Lord. He rebuilt the high places and re- had reintroduced idol worship back into Judean um, life. And he caused Judah to turn away from God and back to the bales of the land. He put idols back into the house of God, and he caused the nation of Judah to do more evil, it says, and even, than even the nations that had been driven out of the promised land for the children of Israel, Israel because of their evil deeds. It says that he shed much innocent blood. But later, in Second Chronicles, it tells us that he was taken captive into Babylon. That prophecy about uh, Babylon coming and sieging the, the country and taking things away, that happened in his son's reign with Manasseh. And while Manasseh is in Babylon... In his judgment for the evil deeds he had done, he humbled himself, and he prayed before God a prayer of repentance, and God accepted that repentance, and Judah again turned back to God and only worshiped the Lord their God. It says even at the high places, they weren't torn down again, but only God was worshiped there. And you know, I was reading this recently, and I thought, well, that kind of connects because it's his son. And my thought was this. We see the good kings and the evil kings, but a lot of times that's how they start. But it's not about how we start. Manasseh is said to be an evil king, but he didn't finish that way. And wherever you started, or maybe wherever you're at right now, that is not what has to define you, but it's how we finish that defines us. And I just felt encouraged by that. And I hope that if you're here and you're like, well, this is who I am, It doesn't have to be who you are. You can turn and repent, and God will accept that, just like with Hezekiah's son, Manasseh. This podcast was brought to you by the Calvary Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. For more information about the Calvary Church, please visit our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Consider joining us for a service where you will find friendly people, high-energy music, and life-transforming preaching and teaching from a biblical worldview. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or on our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.